Well, good morning. All right. I'm probably the most excited to be in front of you today. It's a good relationship we have going here. We make jokes. You don't laugh. It's good. Um, so we got 17 verses, 34 minutes, 43 seconds, and 42 points we got to get through. But I know you guys are third service. You come for the extended edition, right? Everyone else... The first two services walked out like, I feel like that was Lord of the Rings, like out of the theater, right? And then you find out, wait, there's a director's cut that's longer, third service, looking around, notice none of the people from second service are back, except for those who have to be, so you guys are in for it. I cut all my jokes, I uh, removed the application just so we can get in this time frame, I know some people on the tech team, they got to go pee, so we got to get through this. Um, so we're going to go ahead and just kind of jump right in. we got some key terms that we're going to walk through today. John 15, it helped, right? 1 through 17 is what we're looking at today. It's on page 901 in the Bible. If you don't have your Bible, there's one in the seat back in front of you. You can go ahead and pull that out. That's where page 901 is. Or if you have a typical English Standard Version, it's on page 901. I was talking with a mentor of mine, he's a field worker in a closed country, and he at one point had been discussing or in discussion with a seminary about being the dean of their international church planting school. They were going to create a program, a master's, that focused on planting churches across cultures with an emphasis in like closed countries, so secure anti-Christian, whether it's government or society, countries. And they said, could you give us some ideas of what, you know, what would be, what you would teach? And he said, yeah, Christology, which if you don't know what that word means, means Jesus. He would teach Jesus. And they said, okay, that's great, but we're more looking into like the practical side of things, like kind of the, the nuts and bolts of church planting. Well, what, what would you be thinking to teach about that? And he said, ah, Jesus. Like, and they couldn't get it because they were really focused on the practical side of things. Um, and today, today's text, we're going to be combating that because that's a very Western, I think, American mindset, the pragmatic side of things. You know, we have uh, pastors read books on church growth, how to grow your church. And it talks about clear communication, good signage, uh, proper lighting, and, and all this kind of stuff. And they'll tag it with, and you definitely need to love Jesus, right? But there's a real pragmatic side of it. We look at the Christian life, and we say, okay, how do I live the Christian life? I had a conversation with a friend, and uh, he was talking about he had been dating a girl seriously and was considering proposing to a Mormon, um, and his family was staunchly like, Christian, there's a difference, Christian. And I was talking with him about it, and he was like, well, I just looked at it, and I could, I mean, I looked at everything Mormonism is, and I thought, I could do that. Like, hold on, man, like, there's an issue here if, if your understanding of Christianity is, is, is doing. Does that make sense? So we're going to be attacking that today. And the best way to attack something that's widely held as a belief is to just let Jesus do the talking. So we're going to be looking at Jesus' words that really kind of kick back against that and, and really solidify, hopefully, in our minds and our hearts that the Christian life is not simply about doing so the first term we're going to look at in John 15 um, is I am. It's more of a phrase, I know, but I'm going to call it a term. So in verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus says this to his disciples, I am 
the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more. This I am statement, uh, we can read it in passing, I am the true vine, but when you read a statement like that, I always, because I'm a nerd, think about, well, what does it say in the Greek? And so usually I'll start in the Greek, and this statement is not, you could say it one of two ways, you could say amy, which is a Greek verb, I am, I'm looking at you, Amy, or you can really make it intensive and, and make it say, I myself am, and then you put the other verb for I am, ego, right, lego my ego, so you have ego, amy, which makes it I myself, it's this intensive, There's, it's saying nothing else, I myself am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. This is a statement of very firm exclusivity, meaning I myself, no one else, just me, am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. So he's, he's saying this, and then you think, oh, this is really cool, and we're all on the same page here. This is third service, I know. We're all wide awake. We're all biblically literate. We see I am, and we say, I wonder if this ties to the I am statement of the Old Testament. Moses says to God, well, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. I said, ooh, this is good. To myself, of course. I would never admit that to you. I said, ooh, this is good. So I'm talking to Greg on the phone, and uh, I said, yeah, so I'm wondering if I, if I should tie it to this. I'm thinking about reading this guy about it, because I think he would have a good say. And Greg said, oh, yeah, no, that's really good. That does tie to the I am statement of the Old Testament, but not that one. Oh, there's more than one. Yeah. There's more than one. In Isaiah chapter 41, he uses this statement, I am, this phrase in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. They, they use this here, and I'll, I'll explain to you why. In chapter 41, he's talking to Israel, saying, hey, don't be afraid. I'm with you. And so he's reminding Israel, the best way God reminds you of how he's going to be there for you is how he reminds you he was there for you. He's with you. He's going before you. And so he's talking to Israel. And in verse 4 of chapter 41, he says, Who's performed and done these things? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last. Here it is. I am he. And then again in verse 13. For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand, your strength. It's I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So we connect it with this, this understanding of the Old Testament. So when Jesus is saying, I am, he's echoing an Old Testament passage where God is telling his people, this is how you relate to me. This is how you know me. You find your identity in me because I have helped you. You find your strength in me because I have held your right hand. I am the one who called you. And so in the New Testament, when Jesus in John chapter 15 is saying, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. He's not simply saying, hey, I'm the true vine. He's saying, I myself am the true vine. You relate to me as I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. 
I want to touch on this a little bit because it says takes away and, the, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Takes away comes from the Greek word iro. Now, obviously, it's in your translation. It translates as takes away. However, vine dressers still to this day use the term iro. When they come to, they have the vine, the branches are coming off. There's a vine that's not positioned properly. Thus, it's not getting the light and the sun that it needs. So the vine dresser does not come with his pruners and go, done, and take it away. The vine dresser comes and actually translates. They use the term iro. He lifts it up. He repositions the branch so that it's now in the light and it can now receive the nutrition that it needs. It's not covered. It's not in the dark. It's not too cold. It's not touching the ground to get bugs and disease. It's been lifted up. It's been reoriented so that it can actually get the nutrients it needs and bear fruit. How many of you, if you've been, for instance, your shoulder's been stuck like this for a long time, and then somebody comes and reorients it, does that feel good? No, it doesn't feel good. So if you're in a position where you realize maybe in your life you've not been producing the proper fruit and suddenly it seems like everything is being thrown up and reoriented in your life, maybe the vine dresser is reorienting you. But he goes on. He says, my father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away or lifts up. We'll translate that. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You can be connected to Christ sourced by him, producing fruit, and God is still going to work in you so that you would produce more fruit. How many of us love the pruning process with God in our lives? Oh, yeah. Put to death that which is earthly among you. Mm. Right? Yeah. It's not a good, it's not a fun process. The gold never sings the praises of the fire, but it understands the end result is the dross is burned away. And so here we have this great understanding that God works in us so we will bear fruit. Whether it's we're kind of plugged in, but we're not in the best situation, so God is going to reorient us so we can receive the nutrition and the community that we need in the position so that we can better actually bear fruit. Or we're already bearing fruit, but God is going to work in our life, put to death that which is earthly among us, prune the debris off so that we can better bear fruit. You see, he does this. Because the dead stuff in your life, guess what it does? It still drains the nutrients. You pull weeds in flower beds, not just because you're grounded, but because the weeds suck the nutrients out of the soil that the plants you intend to grow and be beautiful can have those nutrients. So God is pruning things out of your life so that you can bear more fruit. God is reorienting you out of the darkness into the light so that you can bear fruit. Plug in to Jesus. So we have this in verses 1 through 3. And then we, we move on into verses 4 through 8. There's one more term, but it really sets the tone for 4 through 8. So I'm going to do that here. He gives us three commands in this passage. All right? The first command we're going to look at, abide in Christ. This is the first command. He says this, abide in me. That's a command. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
And then if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. This word for abide is, it's actually a phrase, abide in me, that Jesus uses frequently about his disciples and how they're supposed to relate to him. And this actually, it it denotes this deep, enduring, personal communion and fellowship with Jesus. So when he says, abide in me, he doesn't say, hang out with me. He doesn't say, follow me on Twitter. He doesn't say, be my friend on Facebook. He doesn't say, spend a little time with me, like 100, like 1 163rd of your week with me and call it good. He says, abide in me. He wants you, he calls you to a deep, enduring, personal relationship. This is important because Christ is our source. If you abide in Christ, fruit is produced. Guys, this is a matter of life and death. The only place where you will find life is when you abide in Christ. The branch produces nothing unless it's abiding in and being sourced by the vine. Abide in me and I in you. You abide in me, you're going to bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So to bear fruit means to abide in Christ. No fruit comes unless we are in Christ. And then to not bear fruit means that you're not in a relationship. You're not abiding with Christ. In verse 6, he says, If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. You see, this is the true taken away moment. This is those who are taken away, withered, and cast into a fire and burned are those who don't abide in Christ. That's why we set this up against the first few verses with takes away. In that verse, he doesn't, he doesn't cut you off and move you. If you're attached to the vine, he reorients you. He reappropriates your location so that you can better bear fruit. If you're not attached to the vine, you are a weed, you are brush. You are surviving on yourself, which only ends in withered, pointless, purposeless, untrue life, at which point you are gathered up and you are cast into the flame. You see, heaven doesn't come by good deeds. You don't get to heaven because you're a good person who does good things. There are plenty of good people who do good things who won't see heaven because it's not about what you do. It's about who you know. It's about abiding in Christ. He is the reward. If you don't abide in Christ, you wither, you're gathered up, you're thrown into the flame. Everybody thought this, this is, when was the last time you heard this? It's like the encouraging verse of the day on Caleb or something. But it's truth. It's just as true as every encouragement that the scripture has. Find your encouragement in the fact that he gives you the opportunity to abide in him and that he gives you the option to choose him. To not bear fruit means to not be in relationship with Christ, ultimately desiring or ultimately ending in this fiery relationship. And this kind of begs the question, how do I know I'm abiding in Christ? How can I know that I am in a personal relationship with Christ? Verse 7 answers this. If you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, 
and it will be done for you. You see, we know we're in Christ when our desires become his desires. Don't read this as a name it and claim it passage, right? Hey, I love Jesus. He's going to give me the desires of my heart, right? Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, right? Jesus, I love you. You know what else? I love Corvettes. <laughs> name it. I love you. You told me if I'm delighted in you that you're going to give me the desires of my heart, that if I'm abiding in you, I did my daily bread, that I'm going to get what I want, the actual translation for this says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will implant within you the desires of your heart. And so suddenly it's no longer a question of, oh, if I, if I go to church and do good things and love Jesus, then I'm going to get good things and a comfortable life. It's, it's an issue of abide in Christ as if there's no one else in whom you can abide because he's your only hope and he's your only grace. And when this starts happening, he starts working within you and he starts changing you and molding you and suddenly your desires are no longer for earthly things, but your desires become his desires. Abide in him. So we know we're in Christ when our desires become his and we produce fruit. Well, then there's another question. Well, what is fruit? I've come up with three general areas of fruit for you. I've not put them in your outline. So if you're one of those people, Leslie, you have to write it down. So here it is. The first one is the fruit of the Spirit. This is in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 26. This is once you become a Christian, you keep in the Spirit. You continue pursuing Christ. The Spirit of God that we discussed last week enters your life, and suddenly characteristics and personality traits begin to change. There are no longer earthly pursuits and passions of flesh, but now you have self-control and you have all these spirits of the fruit that are your actual characteristics and traits. People look at you and they start to say, man, I think I see Jesus in that person. So the fruits of the Spirit are the first one. The second one, disciples making disciples. As we pursue Christ, we cannot help but bring others along with us. As we abide in Christ, we cannot help but draw others along to us and with us. That's in 2 Timothy. This is hard to remember. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Right? The things that I've told you in the presence of many witnesses also pass on to those who will pass it on to others. Okay? So disciples who make disciples. And then the third, this is the one we all hit way too heavily and we all ascribe way too much weight to. Ready? Matthew 5, 16. Therefore, let your light shine that they may see your good deeds. Now, if any of you have that passage memorized, you're itching right now because you know I didn't complete the text. So in this way, let your light shine that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Certainly, there's a thrust here. There, there is an emphasis in Scripture that we should live right according to the Spirit, that someone may say to you, well, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. So there is an, there is an emphasis on this, but don't get it backwards. It's not about the works. The works come out of the relationship. So just as the body without the breath is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So we have this understanding. These are three areas of fruits, personality traits and characteristics, um, your relationships with others, and then ultimately the way you live your life. That's pretty general. The things you do define the fruit in your life, and you will know a tree by its fruit. 
doesn't matter if it tells you it's a walnut tree. If it's growing oranges, it's an orange tree. So these good deeds. The next command, I think we can do this. I think we're all got this. Okay, abide in Christ. We can do this. Okay, abide in Christ. Next one, abide in Christ's love. Yes, I can do this. This is stuff that really doesn't have that much accountability in it, right? Like, hey, I abide in Christ's love. Look at this. I helped that old lady with her bag. You took her bag from her. Well, it looked heavy, right? So we have this abide in Christ's love. In verses, I got to flip my page. In verses 9 through 11, it says this. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So we have this picture. We can do this, all right? Loving, loving, abiding in Christ's love. We can do that. Father loved me, so I have loved you. Okay, cool. Abide in my love. What does abiding in Christ's love look like? What does loving Christ look like? Loving Christ looks like obedience. Our love for Christ and Christ's love for us is characterized by obedience. This is not a brain-dead obedience. This is not a, oh, I have to say no to fun so I can say yes to Jesus. This is a saying no to something that could potentially be good for saying yes to something that you know will be great, right? Love for somebody looks like obedience. I could stand up here and be like, I love my mother. I would take a bullet for my mom, but I wouldn't take the trash out. Yeah, see, now you're all convicted because you've all been there. But love looks like obedience. It's a simple act of obedience. Love looks like saying no to something that's earthly, temporal, which means it's only here for a little bit, so that you can say yes to something that's of God and it's going to last into eternity. Saying obedience to Christ is an actual choice in, in the turning from your slavery to sin to this wonderful relationship with Jesus. You step into obedience. You will abide in my love if you keep my commandments. Just as I, he's not asking you to do something he's not willing to do himself. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be full. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this. One died for all, therefore all have died. He died for all so that those who live, check it, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The love of Christ, what is it? Controls us. You cannot help but when you come to the reality and the realization that Jesus died for you so that you might live for him, but that it didn't end there. He rose from the dead so that you could live for him. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this. It's a simple act of obedience. It's this beautiful act of dying to yourself. And he he goes on, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Obedience to Christ brings joy. An otherworldly, above everything we've ever known kind of joy 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, complete, perfected. Abide in Christ's love. How do we know? We're obeying Christ's commands, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Obedience, abiding in Christ's love looks like obedience to Christ's command. So far, we've been doing a lot of this, right? We've been doing a lot of, okay, our relationship with Jesus. It's this kind of vertical idea in my head, at least, so I'm forcing it on you. This understanding that the internal, right? Okay, we've got to abide in Christ. We've got to abide in Christ's love. Christ has to abide in us. And there's this pet peeve of mine in verse 7 where he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This idea that we're actually internalizing the words of Christ. What? We're memorizing the words of Christ. We're committing to memory, making a part of our own identity, the words of Jesus. This could be the most neglected discipline in the church today. I know it's one of the most neglected disciplines in my life, scripture memory. And a lot of us right now are thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I, don't, I can't memorize scripture. I, can't, I, I have a horrible memory, so I'm out. Sorry about it. I'm not made that way. What's the word? I'm not wired like that. All right, cool. We'll talk about this later on the phone. Give me your phone number. Oh, you have your phone number memorized. Would you rather do it by mail correspondence? What's your address? Oh, you have your address memorized? How long have you lived there? Oh, a couple of years. Where did you live before that? Oh, we lived at da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, you have that address memorized. Okay, all right. We're gonna do a thought experiment now. Okay, ready? Is this the real life? Is this just... Caught in a landslide, no escape from. (laughs) Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the. We got some people, third service, you're the only ones. Right? Throw an easier one for you. For God so. The world, right? So as those who've been called holy and dearly. Loved, somebody got it. Clothe yourselves with. Compassion. Kindness. Humility, gentleness, we're fading out, we're fading out. Ever since my baby left me, I found a new place to dwell. It's down at the end of Lonely Street at. (laughs) Why can't we memorize scripture? Give me a beat, right? Like, for some of us, maybe that is what we need. I memorized uh, 1 John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit. I memorized that too. This land is your land. That's horrible. Like it, but it sticks in my head, and I had to do it that way. But what's the problem? Many of us don't want to do the work to commit it to memory. I am not somebody who can be like, oh, I do not ask for these only, but da 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 da. Like, I have to ground and pound to get this stuff into my head. But remember what I said earlier about abiding in Christ and it's a matter of life and? Christ should be central to our identity. His words should be central to our identity. The scripture, I mean, I'm glad a lot of people like, like, the, like a lot of people in the Muslim community still refer to Christians as people of the book. 
I'm glad that they haven't stepped foot in a lot of our like small groups or, or the church on, on larges like actual get-togethers because they'd realize like, yeah, we, we hang out and we talk about it kind of, but we don't really know a lot about it. We don't really know a lot of it. We need to internalize this because once we start abiding in Christ, we have a hunger for his words, that we remember things that he says to us and it becomes a part of our identity. It starts to guide how we live so that we can abide more in his love and then obey him more effectively. You can't obey somebody's commands that you don't know. And unfortunately, ignorance of the command is no excuse. So we have this time in which we need to spend abiding in him and abiding in his love, understanding that when we abide in him and in his love, it steps and flows into obedience. And then we move from this to the final command that Jesus gives us, and quite possibly the hardest command that Jesus gives us. Love one another. Is that hard or what, right? Don't, don't act like it's not hard. I have eyes, ears, and I can read Facebook posts about this last election, okay? Loving each other is hard. He says this, though, in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Okay, here we go. We're stepping into it. This vertical now affects horizontal. This our relationship with Jesus now affects our relationship with other Christians. The internal is now affecting the external. What's going on, what God is doing inside of us is now moving outside of us as we begin to love one another. So he says, love one another, how? As I have loved you. So what sources our love for one another? Christ's love. Love one another as I have loved you. Well, what's the chief characteristic of Christ's love? Sacrifice. Love one another as I have loved you. And then he says this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. We look beyond ourselves for the sake of the body. In Acts chapter 2, verses 44 through 46, he says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, these Christians, these believers, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. They looked beyond themselves for the sake of the body to the point that they were willing to sacrifice property and possessions for the sake of meeting other people's needs. There's this glorious text in Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm not going to read it to you. Write it down, memorize it, recite it to me next week. It's going to be great. But the whole thrust of this is have this mindset among you that was Christ's Mindset. Do nothing from selfish ambition, envy, or conceit, but in your state of mind, regard others as more important than yourself. Going on in, in 2 Corinthians, where he says, For the love of Christ controls us. After that passage, he says, So therefore, in this way, we regard no one according to the flesh. Though we did regard Christ according to the flesh, in this way, we regard him no longer. This idea that suddenly our vision, we set our minds, on the heavenly things where Christ is seated at the right hand of Christ because Christ is our life. We step into this love for one another that's no longer us. And does that not smack in the face of American and Western civilization? 
it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me. To the point where we call our favorite baseball teams our team. You have no ownership of them, but they're your team. Since when? They're our team. We have this ownership. The whole point of taking the fruit in the garden and plunging all of humanity and creation into brokenness was a selfish desire. We are all tenants who want to be owners. And yet in Christ, we are all called to look with the love of Christ beyond ourselves. Even Soren Kierkegaard, he's this famous Danish philosopher, famous in my mind. And I know not many Danish people are famous, but uh, in your mind. But he has this quote. He's the father of modern-day existentialism, which we all just think of as like individualism. And he, he said, yes, my own gifts and talents are incredibly important in so much as they relate to the community around me. Yes, you are incredibly important. Your gifting is special. Your gifting is necessary for the body of believers. That we could equip each other, that we could encourage each other that we could sharpen each other, this ability to look beyond ourselves. And then Jesus does something really, really special. He counts us in with him in verses 14 through 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. There's this understanding now in our relationship with Jesus that he counts us in. It's no longer, it's not this mentality of, well, he's a slave owner and I'm the slave, which is the perfect mentality to have, Galatians 1.10, about your relationship with Christ and the spirit of your obedience. But Christ is somebody who doesn't come in like the typical slave owner would and say, you do this, 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 and this. I'll be back on this day at this time. And walks out. So the slave is left knowing simply what he's supposed to do. And then if he doesn't do it, the master is going to have some serious wrath when he gets back. Whereas the friend comes in with the wide view and says, hey, you are gifted in this. You are so special because of this. I need you to do this, this, and this. Because if you can do that, and I know you can, this group over here when you do that, he's going to be able to do this, 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 and this. And we're going to make so much progress and we're going to get so far and we're going to do so much good. And I'm going to be here with you the whole time, working with you, handling the load with you, encouraging you to keep pressing on. So Jesus is saying, I'm counting you in. You're not simply a servant, you're a friend. And I love this. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. But the point of Christ choosing us I chose you and I appointed you that you should, one, go. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. So go. And that you would bear fruit. That the Spirit would work in your life and change you from the inside out. That you would begin calling other people to Christ with you. 1 Corinthians 11.1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Is your life worth imitating? bear fruit. Do good things that they would see your good deeds and that they would give glory to your Father who's in heaven. I appointed you to this end and that your fruit should abide. The point of Christ choosing us is abiding fruit. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. I'm calling you out. I'm choosing you. I'm appointing you. I'm sending you out. 
so that you would make disciples who make disciples who make disciples and that your heart would be so aligned with the heart of me and the heart of my Father that whatever you ask, God would give it to you. How many of you as parents, thought project, have been sitting there waiting for your kid to ask you for your help? You know you can do it. It's not a big deal. You're sitting there waiting. Whenever you're ready, kid, come on. And then the kid finally turns around and says, hey, can you help me with this? Or can you do this for me? How many of you would go, ha! Right? Or how many of you would have been waiting, wanting your kid to ask for your help would say, yes. So the father stands, waiting for your heart to so align with his and that for your will to so align with his and your desires to be his desires that when you ask him, he gives it to you. You got to abide in Christ. You got to understand who he is, this personal enduring relationship with him. Understand his love so much to the point that it changes who you are and how you relate to others. And then of course, Jesus gives us this command again. He says, these things, in verse 17, I command you, love me, abide in my love, internalize my words, let me change your identity. I've commanded you these things so that you will love one another. Don't miss this. It was so nice, he said it twice. Love one another. No, seriously, Christian Republicans and Christian Democrats love one another. No, seriously, Christian African American churches and Christian Mexican churches and Christian white churches love one another. No, seriously, older generation Christians, younger millennial Christians love one another. The strongest apologetic argument to be made for the truth of the gospel is the church's love for each other. Love one another. There are many points that I think when I was studying this text really hit me. And hopefully I'm inflicting them on you too. A lot of us are to the point where we have scripture memorized. We use it as a weapon sometimes. We spend time with Jesus. But there's that coworker, there's that family member there's that distant relative, there's that neighbor, there's that teacher, am I right, parents, that you struggle to love. Or if you're a teacher, there's that parent, right, am I right? Parent, you say parents, right, that you, just, you struggle to love. Maybe for some of us, it's the point where, you know what, I really, I spend time with Jesus, I read the Bible I have this prayer and read the Bible every year thing that I do. But maybe it's not really abiding in you. His words have not become a part of who you are. Or maybe it's just a matter of you need to abide in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we don't come before you, Lord, because we know that you are here already. You were here before we sat down. You were here and you were with us when we got in the car to come here. And so, Father, we just, we acknowledge your presence. And Lord, we ask for your guidance. 
for your work in our lives, that we would be able to truly have that personal enduring relationship with you, that it would change us from the inside out. Lord, help us continue to die to ourselves so that we can truly live for you. Lord, we ask that you'd give us the strength to say no to the good so that we can say yes to the great. To your name we pray.